welcome to the Trust Your Body Project. Trust Your Body Project is a podcast and social media movement designed to help you heal, eat, and create space for the things that truly matter. I'm your host, Whitney Catalano. I'm an anti-diet, health at every size registered dietitian, helping you stop dieting, make peace with your body, and take the power back from your inner bully. Welcome to episode number 13. On today's episode, we're talking all about my therapy nerd obsession, acceptance and commitment therapy. In the appetizer, I'm going to explain a little more about what acceptance and commitment therapy is, otherwise known as ACT, as in like acting, but ACT, to prepare you for our amazing interview. I'm so excited with the incredible Margaret Berman. So Margaret Berman, just for a little backstory, is the author of the book, A Clinician's Guide to Acceptance-Based Approaches for Weight Concerns, which are probably like, what is that? So that book is the book that I am like constantly referencing for info on health at every size and just like debunking all the bullshit around weight science. So every time, like that long Twitter thread that I talked about in podcast episode number five that I still have pinned to my Twitter page at Winnie Catalano and on Instagram, I'm at Trust Your Body Project. Okay, plug over. I got a lot of that information from this book. This book is also the book where, I don't know if you saw on Instagram and on Twitter, I posted that thing being like, you know, let's stop talking about BMI because actually being underweight has the highest risk of mortality of of all the BMI categories and everyone comments on all of my fat friends Instagrams being like you know you're promoting death and it's like okay you can't say that (laughs) like that's not it's just not even true like that's just I mean you know someone's existence is not promoting death for starters and also that's like really fucking rude but also like it's not even statistically based and BMI is also just absolute bullshit and we use it as this like crutch of like I'm concerned about your health so anyway if you want to hear like a thousand rants on that you can go to my Instagram and go to my Twitter you can go to every episode of this podcast so yeah if you're a clinician or just like a science junkie like I am I'd highly recommend she also has a workbook which I'm going to talk about in a little bit but the workbook is for just anyone who needs help with body acceptance she has a really great section in that workbook about like figuring out how to help your health with Without having to focus on weight. So like, what is it that's wrong? And then what are all the things that you could do that have nothing to do with losing weight? And so it helps you kind of like navigate that whole conversation. If you are struggling with high cholesterol or like prediabetes or something, and you've been told to lose weight. And so you don't really know what to do. The workbook has parts for that. So I would definitely, definitely recommend the workbook. I think it's awesome. And just in general, I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. She explains things so well. She is like, seriously, I feel like a soak connected to her. I'm really obsessed with her. So I'm very excited for you all to hear this interview and I just can't wait. We're also going to be talking about BMI and why it's bullshit and what Margaret recommends should be our BMI categorizations and how BMI really should be used, including how she teaches about BMI to medical students. Just a heads up, I am going to keep the category terminology in there. So the O word, which I, as you know, I don't use on this podcast. So I'm going to give a warning for that just because there's really no way for me to take these words out in the conversation because I think it's really important to hear how she talks about it. And she kind of breaks down like why what we think about these different categories is not true and why our biases impact the way that we treat people. So yeah, I am going to keep those words in just as a heads up. If those are triggering to you, if you are sensitive to them, please don't listen to this episode. But I hope for the rest of you that you get a lot out of this episode. So before we get started, thank you to everyone leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. Specifically, thank you, LaneyC223. I can't remember if I thanked you in the last episode, so I'm thanking you again just in case. Alexis223, which seems, you know coincidental and not so undercover haze student so thank you for listening thank you for reviewing please keep leaving those reviews on apple Podcasts. they really help me out and hopefully i can land on new and noteworthy one of these days because that's like a really big deal so if you feel inspired by my podcast and like connected to me in some weird inexplicable way and are looking to take your relationship with food and your body and your life really to the next level you can book a free call with me at whitneycatalano.com book 
That's WhitneyCatalano.com slash book. I'm not going to sit here and try to convince you why you should work with me over someone else. That's just not my vibe. You can work with, you know, there's so many Hayes and intuitive eating professionals online, probably a lot who have like cheaper services than I do, a lot who are much more straightforward by the book. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what I do because this might be speaking to you. So like I've said in past episodes, like I don't really even invite everyone to work with me who I talk to. And I do love doing these calls. Like I love getting to know you all and I love seeing where you're at and helping you as I can. Um, but I'm looking for people who immediately feel right to me on the call. So like within a few minutes, I can tell if someone is going to be that sort of aligned client for me. And I'm looking for people who are ready to do the deeper work. So we're talking like a full deep dive into your upbringing, your relationship with your parents and your friends, your quote unquote bad habits and why you can't seem to get out of your own way. Uh, we do a lot of that mental work, that mindset work of becoming friends with yourself and breaking through those negative thoughts and breaking through anxiety and breaking through all of that so that you can make peace with it. A lot of it is rooted in the work that we're going to be talking about today, ACT. That's a lot of what I do. And we'll be talking about how your relationship with food ripples into other areas of your life. So I'm a big believer that your relationship with food and your relationship with your body are just mirrors to the rest of your life. And I'm sure I've said that before. I'll say it a thousand times again. And what's funny is that before I really became the coach that I am today, because I have like evolved as a coach so dramatically in the past six months, it's kind of mind boggling to me, honestly. But before I became the coach that I am today, I was still saying this, like even two years ago when I first started my business, I was saying like, I really do believe there's this truth of like our relationship with one area of our life tends to mirror our relationships in other areas of our lives with people, with our jobs, with the way that we see ourselves, with the way that we just carry ourselves in the world. And so, you know, one of the things I've found is that when you're sacrificing your well-being, you're sacrificing what you need for your body, you're sacrificing, you know, what you eat and how you move and all these things in order to shrink yourself and make yourself smaller and to kind of sacrifice who you are and try to hide and fit into what other people want you to be, you tend to do that in every single area of your life. So if you find that you are afraid to speak up for a promotion that you deserve, or you're afraid to be too loud, or you're afraid to put yourself out there and romantically, or you're afraid to, you know, you find yourself projecting onto your relationships in life, whether they're romantic or your friendships, maybe you feel really lonely. Maybe you get walked all over in your friendships. That is so common. I'm working with a couple of people right now who we're working through that. And I'm kind of like, you know, we're talking about how you got to ask for what you need and you've got to expect a certain reciprocity there. You can't expect people to like fill your needs, but you can expect people to like be respectful and hold space for you and to make you feel safe and loved and heard. And a lot of that has to do with just asking for what you need and surrounding yourself with people who expect the same in return and really value that sort of relationship. And what tends to happen as we work on this process, for example, you know, I've had clients leave their jobs and completely switch careers. Even I had a client who left her career at 60 years old to go to another job. She brought like five of her employees with her, her entire team with, you know, an insanely higher salary because she realized that she had been accepting less all of her life. And she was just like, whoa, I feel like I woke up. So it's just these, these things, right? And, you know, in other areas of your life, you may find that you're going to start setting boundaries with people you've never set boundaries before. And they're not going to like it because they're used to walking all over you. And they're used to you being sort of a doormat for them. But when you start owning your power and taking up space and being bold and really being authentic, you're going to get rid of the people in your life who don't serve you and who don't need to be there. And you're going to be able to surround yourself with new people who really fill you up and boost you up and like love every part of you. So that's the kind of stuff that happens when you heal your relationship with food. Like this is not just eating cake again, okay? This is so much more. So if that's the kind of work you're looking for, I would definitely encourage you to book a discovery call with me. Again, these discovery calls are free. They're an hour and they're really fun. We kind of just do a deep dive, see where you're at, see if what I've got to offer works for you and we can take it from there. So WhitneyCatalano.com slash book. A quick disclaimer that the information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. 
so to preface our interview today, I want to talk a little bit about what ACT is. Again, it's Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT. So I'm going to be using the acronym ACT in case you're confused. So it's a type of therapy born out of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. You know, Margaret Berman describes it a lot better than I'm going to right now. Um, she describes it later in the interview as more of like a Buddhist approach to negative feelings. It takes this idea, basically what she says later on, and what I'm gonna just say right now, is that traditionally the goal of therapy and the goal of like psychiatry, for example, is to reduce and eliminate bad feelings and symptoms. So it's like to get rid of these things. But the goal of ACT is different. It recognizes that it is human to suffer. And, you know, if you're thinking about one of the things she says, which you'll hear, the last time you probably felt sad or you suffered in some way was like in the past 24 hours, you know? It's very, I, I can like pretty immediately think of the last time that I felt sad or stressed or anxious or uncomfortable. These things happen all the time. We're not gonna be able to get rid of these feelings. We're not gonna be able to eliminate suffering. What we can do instead is learn to sit with it and let it pass by so that it doesn't get in the way of our life and we don't attach ourselves to it. So what happens when most of us experience, you know, anxiety, sadness, or stress, especially at a young age, and especially when we are not made to feel safe by our parents or we're not taught how to process our emotions by our parents or by our community around us is that we don't know how to sit with those feelings, those, those quote negative feelings or process them. And so we learn to kind of shove them down, push them away, run from them. And it's little things like, you know, stop crying or don't be sad. You know, these little things, these little messages are taught to us that it's bad to feel sad. It's bad to feel angry. It's bad to feel, you know, ashamed or guilty or upset or whatever it is and anxious. Like it's bad to feel these things and we should avoid these feelings as much as possible. And so we're taught this over and over and over again. And then that's what exactly what we do. We run for them. We push them away. We try to like ignore, hide, get rid of them as much as possible. And every time they come creeping in, we're like, no, like get rid of them. But as Brene Brown says, you cannot selectively numb emotions. So when we numb the negative emotions, we also lose the positive emotions. So you end up feeling kind of like numb to life. This is also very similar to like how we end up developing disordered relationships with our body, using food as a mechanism for control and using food as a coping mechanism for our emotions. If you grew up in a really chaotic upbringing or you had some trauma as a kid or something like that, you may have found, you know, comfort in food or you may have felt unsafe to feel your emotions. And even if nothing like that happened, right, even if you grew up in a great environment, whatever it is, somewhere along the way, you were taught that it's not okay to feel emotions. It's not, it's, you've got to avoid them. They're bad. They, they make you a bad person or, or they're a sign that something's wrong with you. And so we numb, we control food, we try to control our bodies when we can't control other areas of our life. We, you know, try to create order in the chaos, even though life is just chaotic. That's just the way it is. And being able to go with it and go with the flow and like experience all the different waves of it is really what makes it beautiful. But it takes a lot of time to learn that if you've spent your entire life or most of your life learning the opposite to numb and push away and avoid and try to only focus on the happy. And for those of you who relate to this, you probably understand this idea of like when you start to push away and avoid your emotions and maybe you're able to push them away for a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, they come in like a wave and you just can't, you get stuck in them and you start to like sulk in them and they get really heavy and really overwhelming. This is also what tends to happen because you cannot, it's like the pendulum as well. You cannot avoid negative emotions. They are a part of life. So what ACT does is it teaches us to be okay with all of our feelings and to let them pass by us. Another thing we tend to do is we tend to fully believe and attach ourselves to our thoughts. This is something I talk about all the time of not believing every thought that you think and that comes directly from my ACT work. There are thoughts and then there is you. You are not your thoughts. But when we attach to them, we believe them, we feel like they define us, we end up causing ourselves way more pain and suffering than we need to because all of a sudden we start feeling guilty for the fact that we're having negative thoughts or we're feeling guilty for the fact that we're having diet thoughts, right? Like diet thoughts will come in and you're like, oh, I thought I was recovered, what's happening? And then you go on this like 48 hour guilt spiral about the fact that you had like one diet thought, you know? But that diet thought is not you. It's just a thought. 
This work really is about letting these thoughts pass us by, letting these feelings come and go, learning to acknowledge them, appreciate them, hold space for them, and then move on with your life. Obviously, there's way more to it than that. I can't possibly explain all of this, but basically what it's about, it's about learning to deal and acknowledge and accept your thoughts and feelings in a way that allows you to continue to live your life in a way that feels really authentic and values driven for you so that these natural occurrences, you know, sadness, anxiety, guilt, shame, don't stop you from enjoying your life. So if you're struggling with body acceptance, you want to approach it from an act perspective. I bought Margaret Berman's workbook of acceptance-based approaches for weight concerns, which is the non-clinician version. It's like the full workbook that I talked about a few minutes ago. So that will be linked in the show notes. I was reading through it. I absolutely love it. I think it's such a great resource. And I I would definitely recommend it for anyone who is looking for a little more of that help. So without further ado, we are going to get into the interview. I know you're going to love it. She said some things that honestly like blew my mind and I'm really excited for you to hear it. So let me know what you think. I would love your feedback over on Instagram. Again, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Um, And I will, yeah, I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, so for today, we are talking to Margaret Berman, who has a PhD in counseling and social psychology from the University of Minnesota. She is currently an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and associate professor of clinical psychology at the Minnesota School of Professional Psychology at Argosy University. And you are the author of one of my favorite resources for clinicians, a clinician's guide to acceptance-based approaches for weight concerns. Um, so thank fun. you for the coming Yeah, up. thank you for inviting me. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fangirl of your book. Like I'm, I can't <laughs> even tell you, I don't even know how I found it. I think I was just listening to a podcast. Oh, I was starting to do a deep dive into um, acceptance and commitment therapy and just uh-huh. totally nerding out on it. And and realizing that this is what has been missing from my life. And how exciting. I know. <laughs> Which every time I talk to an act, a fellow like act nerd, and I, I did another interview, which I think will come out after yours with another therapist who practices act. And I am just, I wish everyone, it's just amazing. <laughs> It's powerful stuff. It really is. And so I was searching, I think I was just searching for things. And then I came across a podcast interview that you did about your book. So I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit about your book and like how you got to this point of writing this and doing all this research around weight stigma and, you know, debunking the weight science and then creating this program. Yeah, so it's been a long time coming for me. So uh, I've always been interested in and worked and taught uh, around women's mental health, around how body image interfaces with women's mental health, and around eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And in graduate school, uh, I sought out specialty training, sort of working with patients with eating disorders at the University of Minnesota. And at that same time, I was getting training uh, in acceptance and commitment therapy on my internship before I got my uh, graduate degree. And I didn't, you know, it's funny, my initial reaction to ACT was that it didn't make any sense to me at all. I was Mm. a feminist cognitive behavioral therapist. The idea that we weren't going to help uh, improve clients' moods or get rid of their psychopathology, that was a very confusing idea to me as a baby therapist. And I didn't like ACT at all. I remember the first weekend workshop I went to for ACT coming home and telling my husband, wow, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Yeah. and actually, he had asked me, he said, well, tell me tell me what you learned today in your weekend workshop. And my husband makes guitars and violins for a living, so he's not a psychologist. You know, he's, that's not the world he comes from. But, you know, so I was trying to tell him a little bit about ACT. And I was telling about this ACT concept of creative hopelessness, which is a technique you use early in therapy to help folks see how the things they've been doing to try and change their lives work. And so I was asking him about something he wanted to change in his life and showing him by example how act work. And I'm I'm thinking this is the dumbest thing in the world, but it's working for him as he thinks about his problem. (laughs) And I thought that was so strange. And at the same time, I was doing this work with women with anorexia. 
And as you may know, there are no effective treatments for women, adult women with anorexia. So when you see patients who are adult women with anorexia, and it's an early onset disorder, so they've often been struggling with uh, anorexia and, and anorexia is a life-threatening disorder. They've been struggling with this life-threatening problem for, you know, often a dozen years or more, even if they're in their early or mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very difficult patient population. You have very little to offer as a clinician and they're very sick and uh, the mortality rate for anorexia is about 20%. So they're at a very high risk in the future. And, uh, you know, it's a discouraging patient population to work with. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to try. This thing is so crazy and I don't get it. And I'm going to try this with my patients with anorexia. And it seemed to work. <laughs> and which was baffling to me at that point in my career. Yeah. And so actually, I way back then, you know, I, I graduated and I, I went on to be a visiting faculty at the University of Minnesota. And I actually went back to the clinic where I trained in eating disorders at Minnesota and did a study, a small case series of acceptance and commitment therapy for anorexia. And we worked with folks that um, we enrolled in the study folks that didn't get better under any other circumstances that everybody else had sort of run out of ideas with. And it was very, we don't know that it was effective because it was a case series. So it was not controlled. It was not a randomized control trial, but it worked. Uh, the women who went through it improved and they improved to such a degree that they stopped getting admitted to the hospital and they were able to move on with their lives. And that was a very, even though it was a very small case series, it was a very exciting research experience for me as a sort of beginning researcher. And, uh, Sort of from there, I, uh, you know, moved jobs a couple of times. I was at the University of Maryland. I was at Dartmouth Medical School there for a while. I did a lot of clinical work. A lot of other things happened. But clinically, I was always fascinated by this issue of self-acceptance. In terms of my teaching, I had always done work around size acceptance. I was an early adopter on size size acceptance as an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a book that came out in the 90s called Women on Large, mm-hmm. which was um, by Lori Toby Edison and uh, Debbie Notkin. I recommend it to everybody. It's a great classic book. And it's a book of nude photographs of large-bodied women, and along with some um, essays written sometimes by the women, sometimes by Debbie Notkin, who's an amazing writer, and uh, just really gorgeous, amazing photographs. And it was a very powerful piece of writing to me at that time. And also in 1998, JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, published an editorial saying uh, that diets don't work and that we should be advocating for self-acceptance for larger body patients and advocating against fat stigma. Mm-hmm. And I, I, a lot of people, I think, don't realize now that body positivity, I think, has become a little bit more mainstream as, a, as an idea out in the culture. I don't think folks realize that that idea was being promulgated by physicians who were looking at the evidence, you know, even 20 years ago. So I had been teaching that way. Uh, and that was what I taught in my Psychology of Women courses. And I shared those photographs from the book. And I also shared some of Deb Burgard's early work mm-hmm. um, about size acceptance. And so that was something that was also happening in my mind. So by the time I got to the place, you know, now 20 years later, where I had the opportunity to write some grants and have some dedicated time for research, to me, it just made a lot of sense to bring those streams together. And, um, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, acceptance right there in the name, it's a self-acceptance based treatment. Uh, It struck me as absolutely right for integration with a health at every size approach, which is what size acceptance had come to be called uh, by that time. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, wrote a grant to develop a pilot and test a pilot trial of this program that I had been using clinically and developing clinically and to turn it into a manualized um, treatment that we could study. Uh, So in 2013, we started a pilot trial for Accept Yourself, the sort of first first iteration of it. And we wrote a little self-help workbook that we would use in the protocol. And that later we sort of transitioned to the self-help workbook that that goes with the clinician manual you read. And we did a pilot trial and the pilot trial went well. So we were able to get a larger grant for a randomized control trial in 2015. And that study actually is under review right now. It still isn't out, but it's um, but the manuscript is out. To hopefully, I'll be able to say in another month that that one's in press and going to come out soon. Um, and then we, we did these two books. And so that's kind of how I got here. Amazing. Yeah. And I think it'll be really interesting for my audience to hear you talk about all of that because I think that there's a really big misconception around what 
research is and what <laughs> counts as good research and how long uh -huh. it actually takes and how much work uh -huh. it is. So I think that'll be really helpful for people to hear just like how long of a process this can really be. And, you know, even if something works when it was in the case study, it still isn't a randomized control trial. So then you still have to write the grant and go through all of that. And yeah, uh -huh. find that it's very a process for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so for those who don't know, um, kind of going back to what you said about going home to your husband and not really believing it, but you saw that it was working for him. What, how would you describe acceptance and commitment therapy to someone who has no idea what it is? Well, I think the thing about acceptance and commitment therapy that makes it counterintuitive, or at least that made it hard for me to wrap my mind around, and when I teach it to clinicians now, what they struggle with is when people come to see us for therapy or for psychiatric treatment or psychological treatment, when they go to their primary care doctors and they say they're depressed, what the clinician is thinking, and I, I think this is also what the patient is usually thinking, is I want you to help me feel better. I want you to get rid of my depression or my sadness or my bad thoughts about my body or my bad thoughts about myself. And if you could get rid of those bad feelings, then what will happen is I will feel better and then I'll be able to get back to having a normal, happy life. And that's what we're imagining when we do psychotherapy. It's what we imagine the whole enterprise of psychiatry is about. Mm -hmm. In acceptance and commitment therapy, we turn that absolutely on its head and we say, the experience of being human in all cultures through all time is actually one of suffering. That there, it's a, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy is a third wave CBT. It incorporates Buddhist ideas. And uh, so one of these ideas is that it, it's human to suffer, that actually we're not happy all the time as humans, that we're not uh, free of psychological pain over the course of our lifetimes or even over the course of a day, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when was the last time you felt sad or scared or angry? You know, it was, it, it was with in the last 48 hours, I guarantee for all of us. Yeah. And right, you know, <laughs> so we're not going to cure that. That's a nature of being human. And so, what really psychological health is, is not getting rid of those bad feelings, but learning how to live an effective, rich, worthwhile life as a richly, deeply feeling human being. Mm. And so we're not going to get all the bad thoughts out of our heads and we're not going to, you know, become uh, free of any psychological pain. I'm not sure we'd even want that. Instead, we're not going to get trapped in the psychological mm -hmm. pain. We're going to move forward on the stuff that's really important to us, whatever that is, you know, loving our kids or writing books or, uh, you know, one of the things that got me inspired to use ACT with women with eating disorders was um, what I learned about women with eating disorders is that they're very generally very driven, very um, ambitious women. Mm -hmm. And they had really exciting big dreams. You know, I want to be president or I want to be uh, I want to become a social worker or I want to start a dance studio for underprivileged kids. I mean, my patients had the most exciting dreams that had gotten totally sidetracked as they uh, spent all their time and all their energy trying to feel better about their bodies. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that if we could just get them working on the stuff they actually cared about and not stuck in this effort to feel better, that maybe they would accomplish something. They would move forward. They would become president. I could vote for some of them for president, you know, mm -hmm. which I would have loved to have done. Right? And uh, so that's kind of act in a nutshell. It's setting aside these unhelpful struggles with um, yourself and your emotions and your thoughts. And okay, those are going to be there. I'm a human being, so I'm going to have these thoughts and feelings. But what do I really care about? And can I focus on that now? Yeah, I, I tweeted something recently that was almost exactly the same as that, which is like people who struggle with disordered eating tend to be very highly driven, highly empathetic, compassionate people who learn mm -hmm. somewhere along the way to hate their bodies and then spend their entire mm -hmm. life working towards that external validation. And that's, I mean, everyone who comes to see me kind of fits that mold, I think, because you sort of attract you know, like I, I think I attract a certain client, but then uh -huh. it's just interesting to see that play out and how much we get sidetracked from doing the really important work in life when you're focusing on your body and when you're focusing on your food or trying to restrict or all of these things. I think that was the thing that initially motivated my interest in this field is just how much 
and, and part as part of my feminism, just how much women are distracted. And it, it actually becomes sort of a means of controlling women. If you can convince a woman that her body is too fat, unacceptable, uh, unattractive, you can stop her from doing any other agenda she might be working forward in her life mm-hmm. and get her invested in this counterproductive process to, to try to control that. And of course, the, the means that we teach women to control their bodies and their body images is weight loss, right. which is in some ways a genius method of control, right? Because right. Uh, here's this activity that you can engage in, a weight loss diet, that in the short term will work the way it's supposed to work, that anybody who's ever tried a diet knows that if you start it and you stick with it, you're going to lose some weight, you're going to feel really good about yourself, and you've made all this progress. You see people posting on Facebook, you know, how much they've lost every week and this kind of thing. So it's very effective in the short term. And in the long term, it is counterproductive. Uh, it actually causes weight gain over the long term. Folks, general, for the typical person, does not generally lose weight and keep it off. And so you end up with this situation where folks are following these rules they've been taught. You know, if you eat less and exercise more, you'll lose weight and then you'll feel better about your body. They're following that set of cultural rules and their problem is getting worse and worse. They go, you know, decades out, they've gained weight, they hate their body more than they did when they started. And they're still stuck in this trap. Mm-hmm. And that struck me as absolutely counterproductive, a complete waste of time. <laughs> and I wanted to help clients get in touch with how it was a waste of their time and what else might they like to do with their lives. Yes, exactly. Oh, this is, <laughs> yes, <laughs> this conversation is really <laughs> amazing. You know, it's something too that uh, one of the things I talk about when I get new clients and, and put them through a program that I'm working on, I'm fine tuning right now, is that... Um, a lot of it comes down to self-worth and doing the things in your life, like you said, that are that bring you fulfillment and that bring you joy. And so one of the things that I've been kind of tracking from beginning to end of my program, and not in any sort of clinical way, but just kind of for my own, you know, beginner stages knowledge is just so at the beginning, can you describe to me what occupies your brain throughout the day? Like how uh-huh. much of your time yeah. are you spending thinking about food and your body and then other things? And then by the end, what does that pie chart, if you will, look like? And yeah. the change that you see is so huge because their bodies haven't necessarily changed. I mean, some do, some don't, right. but their lives have dramatically changed. And it really just comes right. down to the way that they see themselves and their goals in relation to you know, what they used to think was true about bodies being like the key to all of this versus now it's like we focus on the goal and that's it. Right. Well, and I tell that to folks uh, and, I, and I think it's even in the books. There's, you know, I ask folks to tell me, I have this theory that actually mm-hmm. nobody wants weight loss. There, Even though my patients routinely come to me and say, will you help me with weight loss? And I have to explain to them that I don't do that. Um, but nobody actually wants weight loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the example I give is nobody wants to win the lottery either. And I can prove it. Mm-hmm. And the way I prove it mm-hmm. is that if I, if you were to win the lottery, if I, if you were to come and visit me and say, okay, you know, Whitney, you've won the lottery. You're going to win a million dollars in the lottery and you'd be so excited. And then I say, there's just one catch. I've got the million dollars right here for you, Whitney. And you, and you can take it home after we talk today, but it's in a Lucite box. The million dollars is just stacked up a set of twenties in this Lucite box. And you can never open the Lucite box. You can't do anything with it. It is completely encased in the Lucite. It's a, it's a million dollars of real money, but you can never take it out of the box. <laughs> Would you still be excited? You know, it's like yeah. you don't actually want the money. You want right. the thing the money can buy. Mm. And it's the same with weight loss. When I tell people, you know, okay, I tell you what, I've got two doors, and behind door number one is your goal weight. You will have achieved whatever your goal weight is. You can you know, be as ambitious as you want. You know, you can have whatever goal weight you want. You'll get behind that door. Uh, but the catch is. All we will change is your gravitational mass in relationship to the earth. If you step onto the scale, you'll see a different number. But everything else stays the same. Your self-image, how your body looks to yourself and others, what you can do with your body, its level of health, its level of sexiness, everything else stays exactly the same. And that's door number one. And then behind the other door, we have door number two. And in that door, you're going to stay exactly the same way you are now. But 
you can have everything that you think is going to happen when you lose weight. So you're going to, your self-image will change. However you imagine your goal weight would change it, your level of sexiness, your health, your ability to do things, your ability to ride on airplanes or, you know, whatever it is that you're picturing, you can have that. Just your weight won't change. Mm-hmm. Which door do you choose? And I've never had a patient say, I want the door with my goal weight. You know, they don't care about their weight. (laughs) They care about the things they think weight will buy them. Mm -hmm. And I say, I don't know how to get you to any particular weight. Your body is not actually controllable. And I usually tell my patients, I promise to let you know if the research on that changes, if at some point it is possible to control your body over the long term, I promise I'll tell you. But for now, I can't tell you how to have the weight you would desire or the body you would desire or anything about that. But I can help you get the things you think weight is a prerequisite for. I can help you with that. That's our, that's our, our uh, map forward in therapy. Patients usually don't believe me, but I tell them, well, let's try it. (laughs) Yeah. That's such, that's hilarious because um, I get that a lot too at the beginning of like, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, I figure even if this doesn't work, like I've tried everything else. So I might as well try this too. And I'm just sitting there smiling like, okay. (laughs) Um, We'll give it a shot, right? Yeah, I guess we'll try. And if it doesn't work, yeah. And what you said is interesting too about you'll let them know if the research changes. Like it's not that I Mm -hmm. want diets not to work or to work. You know, it's like, I'm not really invested in either. I just... Mm-hmm. don't have an answer. And so I'm tired of people recommending a solution that isn't supported by evidence. That isn't going to work. Yeah. yeah, it's not going to work. Well, and the thing that is so difficult about weight loss in that way is that for a tiny number of people, it does work. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's odd about um, weight loss research, and I've read more weight loss research, I think, than I ever wanted to in my life. Right. But <laughs> the standard deviations are bigger than the means in weight mm-hmm. loss research. And what that means is that there's huge variability in how people respond to weight loss interventions. And so there are people out there who lose weight on on diets, who keep it off, and who become evangelists and convince everyone else that if if only you followed my program, your body would work exactly the same way and you would have my outcome. And the reality is for most people, weight loss efforts cause weight gain and they cause increased body dissatisfaction. And so my secret agenda, you know, I tell my patients, hey, you know, I'll I'll let you know the minute the research changes. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But I want to live in a world where this isn't the prerequisite to happiness for people. I want to live in a world where we've uh, dealt with our fat hatred as a society and we no longer discriminate against people on the basis of body size. And at the same time, like you say, really holding that with patients, it's like, I would, I would give you the body you dreamed of if I could, you know, right. I would love to be able to give us all permanently able-bodied, permanent, you know, whatever you would envision for the perfect body that you can have it and you can just, you know, have it for the rest of your life. Uh, but that's not the world we live in, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And especially when you see someone struggling so much too, with just internalized fat phobia and, and stigma. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard as a clinician to be like, I wish I could tell you that diets worked. I wish I could Uh help remove some of the pain that you've experienced in from the world. I really do. But I can only hold you through this process and like help you feel safe here and teach you the tools that will enable you to live a really full life, even though you've got all of these other, you know, all of these other messages coming at you. Yes. Yeah. And there, there was a lot of initial talk, you know, even the, even the word body positivity, this idea that you should love your body. Mm-hmm. And I tell my patients, I actually don't need you to have any particular feelings about your body. You may hate your body at the end. You may have every bit as many bad thoughts about your body as you, as you do now. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in is can you move with this body, this body that's the unfortunately the only body you'll ever get? We don't have any choice about it. You know, you were issued it at birth and it's gone along the way it's gone along and no, very little control over it. Can you live the life you want to live in this body? Can you kind of move forward with this body? And also, can we put the anger where it belongs? Patients put a lot of anger on their own bodies, so much hatred for the body rather than 
hating this world, which is discriminating against your body, right? You know, uh, hating the people and systems and all of that that make your life more difficult. It's like, we don't need to change your body. We need to change how clothing is sold and how medicine is done and how airplanes work and how people act and believe that's what we need to change, not you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that firsthand, the power of anger and people really speaking out and using their voice when you get angry at the system because things are starting to change. Yes, slowly, but they're happening. Yeah, that's so exciting. (laughs) It's awesome to watch. Like we're in such a renaissance Uh right now when it comes to the way that we view bodies because I think of social media, just how uh-huh. powerful people's voices really are now. That you can really unite and find a lot behind it. And it is just very exciting. I'm, when I teach now, uh, especially when I teach you know, undergrads or young students and folks will say, they'll use the phrase diet culture. That is not a phrase anybody said to me 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I were 20 years ago when I started this work, you know, 20 years ago, no one knew or believed me when I talked about this. I Now it's out there in the culture, this idea that dieting as a culture is something harmful in and of itself, not a useful strategy. I love it. Yes. Oh my gosh. I do too. And I get a lot of questions of things that I forget to explain sometimes or like keep explaining like what's health at every size. Mm -hmm. What what are all these terms, you know, Mm -hmm. but diet culture, I've never been asked by someone to explain diet culture because Uh I think people hear the word and they're like, oh, yeah, they get it. Yeah, right. they've like, been we steeped all in are it. Here. <laughs> yeah, uh huh. And yeah. that yeah. actually it's very I understandable. Even, I didn't even realize that though until you just said that. Where it's like, well, uh-huh. no one has ever asked me to explain what diet culture is before. That's why. Uh huh. Because women in in the United States and in many places around the world have been living in it. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely living in diet culture. We knew it the second we saw it. We just oh. needed words to say, wait a minute, that's a bunch of shit I'm being sold, not <laughs> yeah. something I have to buy into. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, so good. I think the next direction I want to go in is a little bit about what you saw missing from the other act-based books and things that are available for weight online and Uh why this came to be. I mean, you explained how this came to be, but like, I heard you talk about it in a podcast and I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. Uh huh. Yeah, I did a, a podcast actually a while back where um, the woman who who was doing the podcast had uh, read. There's an ACT book uh, related to weight loss, and she had read it. and And I haven't. I still haven't read it. I need to go look at it mm-hmm. um, to sort of take a look at it. This, you know, this idea that you're going to apply ACT to a weight loss uh, message. And certainly, there have been studies done looking at ACT. You know, adding it to a standard behavioral weight loss approach, mm-hmm. and what they find in the research is that it, and and the way these studies have typically been done, it's sort of interesting. They haven't actually created, at least to my understanding, and I may not, you know I may not have read the latest thing, but to my understanding, they haven't actually created an act-based weight loss program. And I have a lot of trouble picturing how that would really, really work. Although, like right. I say, there are some books out there that sort of try to go in that direction. Instead, what they've done is take an ACT workshop for how you, you know, the kind of weekend workshop that you do to learn ACT principles to uh, help with your mental health in general. And they've tacked that on to the beginning or the end of an otherwise ordinary behavioral weight loss program. Mm. And when they do that, they find that people lose a little more weight and they're less stig- self-stigmatizing and they're a little more self-accepting. Um, and of course, all of these are the same short-term weight loss studies where well, everybody loses weight who does the, who engages in the diet. They don't look over the long term and see that they've gained it back. I don't know of any long long term studies that have done in that regard. So people, I mean, it makes sense. Any kind of useful therapeutic tool is going to get applied to weight loss because we we have a fat phobic culture where you know weight loss is this prime imperative. But I don't think it's really in the spirit of ACT. The spirit of ACT has always been about self-acceptance, has always been about sitting with uncomfortable internal sensations and feelings and moving forward on what matters to you. And what could be um, a better epitome of that than the pain that people feel around their body image and the wish and dream that if they had the perfect body, they'd feel better. And what could be a less uh, positive use of your time than focusing exclusively on weight loss? I've never had anybody say to me, 
oh, I have to engage in weight loss because it's so fun and I get such a moral enjoyment, you know, such moral benefit out of it. It makes the world better. Nobody says that to me. They say it because I feel like I need to lose weight for my other values, my health or my relationships. And let's work on those other values first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that brings us to the next question, like perfectly, <laughs> which is, you know, talking about this idea of weight loss leading to better health. And Mm -hmm. if we didn't get to it in this interview, I was going to do it anyway. And like before we talked, but I think now is a perfect time to talk about it, which is this part in your book um, where you talk about BMI and, you know, you leave out some of the other BMI arguments of like how BMI is flawed sort of historically. Like you talked a little bit about it, but what you really focused on, which I found really fascinating was this change where they adjusted the BMI to be lower, like normal BMI. Uh Was that in 1998? Yep. So that was like at the same time that diets. (laughs) (laughs) The researchers were realizing this nonsense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When you said 1998 earlier, I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) it's all happening at the same time. Yeah. So you talk about, you know, and you challenge the reader to guess which BMI classification has the highest risk or of mortality. And then you uh-huh. kind of go on to show that what you probably expected was not is not true. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you can walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, research on the health effects of weight is so fascinating and so interesting because people, the expectation people have about what that research is, is that they can summarize it in one sentence, you know, weight is bad for you. Uh, Being fat is bad for you. And that's not actually what the research says. And the research is actually fascinating and nuanced and really interesting um, and worth digging into, but it's too nuanced to capture in a, you know, you know, capture in one sentence, you know, it can't just say, oh, well, being fat is bad for you. It's true, and I'm not going to try and argue that it isn't true, That because uh, there's a big body of research that says it is, and most of it's methodologically sound. It's true to say that living in a fatter body is a risk factor for a variety of different diseases, uh, chronic diseases, including chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all, of, you know, all the things that people think about. That part's true. And and we should be honest about that. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing I always like to point out is what's another example of an unchangeable personal demographic characteristic that is uh, associated with poor health? Well, my favorite example is being a man. If you're mm-hmm. a man, uh, you have seven years less life expectancy. You know, <laughs> you're much more likely to die of heart disease. You're much more likely to die of alcoholism. You're much more likely to die of suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things. But we never say so you. No man has ever been to his doctor and had his doctor say to him, uh, "You know, sir, uh, you're at very high risk for your health because of your male gender, and I suggest you change your gender in order to improve your health." Mm-hmm. We've never ever said that to a man. And we we should be thinking about weight in that same way as out of your personal control. Mm -hmm. And that's how we should be focusing on it. The research on BMI, what's interesting about that is, as you mentioned, in the 90s, they made BMI categories slightly more stringent. And so when you hear people talk about the epidemic. Well, there's some truth to the fact that weights changed in the United States and in other places in the world in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But also, to some extent, it's an artifact. There were people who went to bed normal weight in 1990. I think it was 98. It might have been 97. Yeah, it was 98. Went to bed at normal weight and and woke up overweight, according to the BMI categories, you know, um, because they made them more stringent. And then researchers spent the next decade or so looking to see whether that was a good idea. Because what you would hope, I mean, BMI categories were never meant to be a personal value judgment. They were never meant to be, that's not what they were invented for. They were not invented as a health screening tool. They were invented for epidemiological researchers to look at trends in large groups and large populations. And they're fine for that. They're easy to measure and they're cheap and, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking at it. But they don't show what people think they show. So when they looked, like I say, when they looked after 1998 in the next decade to see, did making these criteria more stringent improve our ability to predict mortality? The answer wasn't really what uh, researchers maybe would have expected or what people would have expected. Mm-hmm. What we know about you know, just the rough classifications and a BMI classification doesn't tell you anything about anybody's individual health. It wasn't invented for that purpose. It's not what it's for. But we know that if you want to worry about mortality and BMI, if you wanted to just say, what's the highest risk category for 
physical health in terms of BMI categories. By and, you know, far and away, the win- the winner or the loser in that ho- horse race is being underweight. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're underweight, uh, you're twice as likely to die about uh, than a person of so-called normal weight. And if we're going to worry about anything, we should be worrying about people with BMIs of 18 and a half or less. That's the folks that we should worry about. But I never hear people doing the worrying about that. I, I always like to say that in the United States, we call a BMI of 18.5 or less. The word we use for it is underweight. Uh, the World Health Organization has a different word for that. They call it malnourished. Mm. <laughs> and so I feel like when we use the word malnourished, we're getting a little better at sort of what's going on there. <laughs> so if we're going to worry about somebody's BMI, that's who we should be worrying about. As far as the other BMI categories, the best mortality outcomes, the longest lived people are currently in the people who are in the overweight category. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the folks who have the longest lifespan. The next longest lifespan is either normal weight or mildly obese. They're pretty much neck and neck. It depends on exactly how you look at it. Those data are a little bit different for women than for men. So uh, mild obesity is more helpful or leads to longer mortality for women than it does for men, but they're really close. Normal weight and, and mild obesity about the same. And then there's a modest increased risk of mortality among folks who are in the uh, moderately to extremely obese category. But it's nowhere near as big a risk as folks in the underweight or malnourished category. So to me, what that suggests is, you know, it's an answer for the epi researchers that really what our BMI cutoffs should look like is, if we're going to use them at all, is probably underweight should go to a BMI of about 20 or so. And we should uh, focus our attention on underweight patients and make sure their health is good. And then probably the normal weight category should go from, uh, tw- you know, 21 or, you know, 20.5, you know, what's, which is currently in the normal weight category. It should go from that up to about 35 mm-hmm. um, and, you know, include a broader range of weights. And those folks are folks we mostly don't need to worry about for long-term mortality. And then maybe you could have a, uh, uh, you know, larger bodied category of 35 or more to, you know, flag that modestly increased risk for that group, you know, in terms of research. I don't think it means anything clinically. Right. But yeah, it's not the stereotype people have <laughs> at all. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I and I thought it was so interesting because you kind of call people out and you were just like, if you looked at Angelina Jolie, for example, solely based on her body type and tried to make assumptions about her her health, which also would be ridiculous. Like the argument right. like you make the argument that you never met Angelina, right? Right. Like you've never met her. You don't know what she eats. You don't know like if she's healthy or not. But if we're gonna say that a certain body type is healthy or unhealthy and you're not looking at her body type as unhealthy or like a risk, but you're looking at bigger bodies, like that comes down to bias. That doesn't come down to like what the research and the statistics actually show. So we need to kind of stop pretending like this is about the research. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and it's a heuristic that clinicians need to use. I use this when I'm teaching medical students. I often will sh- uh, throw up on the screen a photo of a model named Kelly Kickham, who's an American model. And the reason I picked out a picture of her is I could get her height and weight. I could get her BMI. Mm-hmm. She has a BMI of 17.5, which is the, not just underweight. It's the cutoff for anorexic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do I know that this model has anorexia? Of course not. I've never met her. I pulled her pictures off the internet. But her photos are these beautiful pictures. They're for a shoe ad. So there are these beautiful fit pictures of her running. She looks like the picture of health, the way it's been programmed into our heads. Mm -hmm. And I show the photo to point out to clinicians, young doctors, this is what a woman with anorexia, when she comes into your office, looks like. She looks great. She looks like what you've been taught you're supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. She looks like what most women think they should look like. And so don't let the fact that she looks great to you uh, stop you from checking her labs, stop you from checking her for orthostatic blood pressure issues, stop you from checking her to make sure she's not going to walk out and have a cardiac arrest because she meets criteria for anorexia, which is a, a highly deadly disease. That's the heuristic I want clinicians to use. If your thinnest bodied clients, if you picture Angelina Jolie or virtually any female celebrity you can think of, if you're not as worried about them as you are about your largest bodied clients, then you have your uh, scientific uh, risk heuristics in your head backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should be worried. If you're going to worry about anybody and their health just based on body size, and of course, it's not correlated with, you know, your health perfectly and, you know, not something to worry about necessarily. But if you're going to focus your worry on a body type, 
focus on your thinnest clients, not your largest ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't be stigmatizing about it. Um, Cause I'm sure there are thin people that will listen to this and be like, yeah, you know, like have their own not wanting to feel judged or stigmatized by their bodies. But the point is like, if you're a doctor and you're supposed to be looking for certain risks and signs, we need to be assessing uh-huh. fairly from a fair and research-based place. Um, That's exactly it. It's, 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 people are uh, suddenly understand when they're asked, when they're told, Hey, you know, the actual high risk body type, if you're going to worry about that for health, it's the thinnest patient or it's Angelina Jolie. People automatically are able to go, no, wait a minute. It isn't fair to judge Angelina Jolie's Mm -hmm. uh, health. We've never met her. We've never clinically interviewed her. You know, I have no idea what kind of health she's in. They're able to get that heuristically. Like, okay, well then you need to apply that to the largest body people that you see and know. Yes. 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 I love that. (laughs) So just to kind of close out here and probably take a little bit of a different turn. So I saw, I was looking, I really did some Google searching on you to kind of figure out, I just learned more about Uh you. And um, I saw that you're a human sexuality teacher as well. Is that true? Uh Or not for a long time, but I was for a while. You were for a while. Do you have anything, just for like a fun, different way to end this, do you have any like fun facts or misconceptions around sex that you found really fascinating when you were teaching human sexuality? Oh, there are so many, right? There are so many. You know, misconceptions related to gender, misconceptions Mm -hmm. related to what sex looks like, misconceptions related to birth control were always really fascinating to me that people uh, had very uh, wrongheaded ideas about what works and doesn't work in birth control. Um, So lots and lots of things that were fascinating to me. The message that I always tried to leave people with, with human sexuality, was that the gender differences that we make so much of in the bedroom are constructs, that they're... Mm -hmm. They're not the reality of the situation. The idea that men have greater sex drive and always want sex all the time, that women have less sex drive and maybe never want sex. The script that Americans have for sex, heterosexual Americans have for sex, that it starts with fondling the woman's breasts and it moves on very quickly to intercourse and that's kind of all there is to it. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a whole set of ideas in our heads about what uh, sexuality is. There are people who research sexual fantasies and find that, uh, you know, there's like five or six sexual fantasies that many, many people have. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me about that is that's not your creativity. You didn't make that up. You got sold that image somewhere along the way, you know, whether from from pornography or whether from something you talked about on the playground when you were a kid or, you know, I'm of the generation that uh, internet porn came in after I was already an adult, you know, Mm -hmm. so for us, it was like coming across your dad's playboys, you know, and things like that. (laughs) And you get these ideas that stick in your head forever and, and, and affect your sexuality. And so what I always encourage people to do about their sexuality is interrogate it, be creative around it. Is this a set of ideas you have about what's hot or what would be fun to do? Is that actually what you find hot and want to do? Or is that something you picked up somewhere along the way? Mm -hmm. Can you alter it? Can you play with it? Can you try something differently and sit with the discomfort of it and see what that's like? And what kind of a sexuality would you like to have? Can you work towards that versus just what you're programmed with, what's automatic for you? So I think that's kind of the the biggest thing that I'd focus on in terms of misconceptions around sex or things to think about is who gave you your set of fantasies and your sexuality? And is that yours? And if it's not, can you be creative and make your own? Mm-hmm. I love that. Have you read the book uh, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski? Yes, it's fantastic, isn't it? And, you know, her idea about, yeah, and her idea about how we all have the same parts, we all have the same genetics, we all have the same base materials, and just the whole spectrum of gender and sexuality comes out of those things being organized a little bit differently. It's such a powerful idea. It's so cool. I'm really hoping to get her on the podcast at some point because I wish everyone would read that book. I think it's It's like... It's a great book. So important. (laughs) For sure. I wonder um, if, she, if you get her on the podcast, tell her she should write a book for men. <laughs> 
I definitely will. I know she has a book coming out about stress, which I'm really excited about. Oh, that'd be fascinating too. Yeah. One last question that I didn't send you beforehand. What would you say is like your favorite part about teaching? Oh, I just love teaching in general. I think teaching is a total guilty pleasure. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a chance to be with students and to mentor them and to support their dreams. And also it's a chance to bring to light cultural stereotypes and, and blow them all apart. Um, <laughs> and so both of those things turn me on about teaching. Yes, I love that. Um, so I would definitely recommend that anyone and everyone, especially clinicians, but also your workbook, just for if for people who are interested in learning more about it's a great self-help book. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But everyone, I love this book. I love that for clinicians, especially this book is so small. I thought that was really strategic of you. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's amazing. It really makes my life easier (laughs) because small is better, right? Short is better. (laughs) Yeah. I just like to have it like in my backpack or in my pocket so that I can, you know, it's just always on hand. So I absolutely love this book. What else do you have going on or anything that you want to let people know about? Well, let's see. So at the American Psychological Association uh, conference next August, I'm hoping to and will be teaching a workshop on this approach. So people could definitely come and uh, get some continuing ed. It's aimed at psychologists, but I think it's open to everyone. So that's kind of the next thing that's on my agenda. If folks are listening from Minnesota, I'm giving a talk for the Minnesota Psychological Association in May. Um, And I don't think I have either of those things up on my website yet, but I should be updating it in the next week or so. So I will. Yeah. So those are some things to think about and definitely to buy the book and enjoy it and review it because what I learned in becoming an author or someone who writes books is that authors thrive on Amazon reviews. So if you ever read a book and you loved it, go and write an Amazon review for it and the author will thank you and with every part of her being, I promise. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's like such a, I will definitely be doing that because I don't think I've done that. I need to. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If I'm definitely planning on attending a workshop or something of yours in the future. So I will come find you if I do and say hi. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you, Whitney. If you are loving the Trust Your Body Project podcast as much as I am, and you want to learn more about rejecting diet culture and taking the power back from dieting and healing your relationship with food and your body, then visit me at WhitneyCatalano.com slash podcast. That's WhitneyCatalano.com slash podcast, where you can find out more information about the Patreon group and to join my community. Um, And you can find all of the episodes along with the show notes and any articles that I link to throughout the different episodes. So head on over to WhitneyCatalano.com slash podcast to learn more.